This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right. Hello, podcast fans. Um, This is Jared Fishman. I'm here with Brent Oman. And if you have heard of him, have heard of his name, you probably are a fan of either PK, which is this really, really innovative system, which I'm sure Brent is going to talk a little bit about. And then um, another series of games, which is one of my personal favorite games, is uh, a game called Field of Battle, which is in its third edition. So hello, Brent. How are you? Great. How are you doing today? I'm doing really, really well. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, you know, for being part of this this podcast. So you're our officially our second ever person on this pod. So well, hopefully good. that feels good. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So Brent, um, there are going to probably be some people on this podcast that maybe have never heard of PK or Field of Battle. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But maybe we could start with just a little bit about you and like where you're from and how you got into gaming. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a Colorado native. You're in the U.S. Um, uh, I was actually born and raised in a, a little tiny town out on the eastern plains of about a thousand people. So there, there weren't any hobby shops around. The nearest hobby shop was in Denver, uh, which is about three hours away, um, which, depending on where you're located, might sound like a long way, but uh, in Colorado, three hours is like a, a blink. <laughs> you might <laughs> right. drive more than that all the time. Right. It's like a Sunday drive, essentially. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and um, so where, where it started was um, like on family vacations, we would uh, drive to visit other family members or, or locations and would drive down through the uh, the South, uh, generally heading uh, towards Florida. And uh, my dad, uh, who was a teacher and a special ed director, uh, he loved historical things. And uh, we would stop in at uh, historical places. So my, my earliest memories were stopping at Shiloh, uh, which I thought was just fascinating. The, you know, the cannons and, and the, the film and all of that. So I, I was hooked from that. And that was probably... Oh man, when I was like ten years old at the, at the earliest. Um, so then, you know, my my interest just grew. I was always taking books out of the library on military history and battles and uh, picture books of battles, things like that. And uh, I remember the first time I found a hobby shop in Denver on one of my dad's business trips to Denver. Uh, there was this magazine called Military Modeling. And uh, it had a, an article in it about uh, World War II wargaming by Charles Grant. Oh, and classic. I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't understand a single thing that he was talking about, like roll a D6 to hit and saving rolls and blast radiuses and all of that. So I, I don't know how long I spent reading through that poor magazine until it was so thumbed over he couldn't even recognize it, trying to from the backside, understand what he was talking about these rules because it just fascinated me. Um, 
So then uh, through another magazine, I ordered a set of rules called Angriff from Z&M Publishing or something like that, uh, which was like the first actual war game set that I had. And, um, you know, being in a small town and the hobby was much different. This, this was like in mid seventies. Mm-hmm. So it, it was very much, um, you had to really search out things to use for wargaming. So like everybody else, it was airfix figures. When I saw those on the trip to, um, the hobby shop in Denver, man, I had to have them. So I had mm-hmm. civil war and, you know, the world war two stuff. Um, but my, 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 uh, I think my two main loves have always been American Civil War and World War II, just from how I started and touring those battlefields from when I was young up through now, um, Civil War battlefields. Um, but, you know, there weren't all of the, the tanks. And as, you know, as a 12 year old, you got to have tanks, right? Of you, know, course. you don't care about the infantry, you want tanks. <laughs> uh, so you couldn't find tanks. Uh, and uh, so I made my own tanks out of uh, templates that, that I copied out of books and made them out of cardboard, taped together. I mean, to me at the time, they looked awesome. Now I no, I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would look terrible now. Uh, but that, that's how I got my start. Uh, you know, and, and I, I never played games exactly the way they said. You know, I'd always be like, well, I don't like that part. I'm, not, I'm just not going to do that. Or uh, there's, I like this because it's shorter. Uh, mm-hmm. I can I can do this quicker. So I, I don't know if there's ever been a game that I've played as published, um, which is kind of the curse of a war game writer and developer's brain. Uh, you just look at stuff and say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Right. You know, it's true because then once you start modifying things and getting away from the original game, I mean, on one hand, you know, if you're the one that's playing, you want to have fun and you want your your people to have fun, so to speak. But then it's like when you tweak one thing, then something else might get out of balance. So it always be for me, it's like it's both the most fun thing about wargaming. It also gives me the biggest headache. (laughs) Yeah. And the the guys in in our game group here always uh, tease me about like, well, what are we playing today? And I'll say, well, it's the, it's whatever battle command field, field of battle. And they'll say, yeah, but what version are we playing? And I'll, right. Whatever, whatever rules we remember. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, you know, again, I'm curious, do you find that the little mods that you make, do you find it to be almost situational or, or is it the sort of thing like, meaning if you are thinking about a rule change, is it, does it happen in the moment or is it something that you play three or four times and then decide to make the change? So usually when I, when I come up with the modifications or I guess there's two things, if it's a published set that we've done, um, they're usually minor tweaks here or there, you know, just based on something that I've seen in a game where it's like, I don't really like that. Mm-hmm. We never ran into that through all of the development playtesting. I don't really like that. So we'll try it this way. I mm-hmm. think they're usually really minor. Uh, in, in like development games um, for new sets that I work on, uh, it's, it's pretty much I sit back and I watch people in the game. Uh, you know, and I can tell by body language and comments uh, about things that happened like, Okay, that doesn't bother me, but it obviously bothers somebody or there's something about this process or the result that kind of wasn't wasn't fun. 
Right. You know, and I'm not saying I, I want everybody to win, but at the, the end of the day, you're playing a game because you want to have fun. Right. For sure. Which I yeah, think sometimes I mean, people get lost on that, right? Yeah. That's that's the biggest. I, when I play, I don't care if I win or lose. I, I mean, I've lost far more of my games than I've ever won. Yeah. Uh, the, one of my favorite quotes um, by um, you know, a guy in our group, his name is, is Eric. Uh, and, and I take this as a compliment, too. It, it it had a really bad uh, run of luck and draw of cards. Things had gone badly for him. And I remember him sitting there and he looked at me and he says, why does it always suck? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, I find like as a gamer, I tend to remember my bad moments, my bad days more than I remember my good ones. And it's always pretty fun. But then again, yeah. it kind of depends on the game. So again, I know we'll probably talk about field, especially for people that don't know field of battle. But when we talk about right. that game system, there's something yeah. about that game. And this is a compliment to you as a rules writer. It, there is something about when things don't go right and trying to kind of sort that out. And even when it doesn't work, it's really fun. But that said, like when I've played other games, you know, so like when I was younger and I played a lot of like, you know, uh, Warhammer type games. There was something about that almost like one-on-one -on -one feel where it would just drive me crazy. Like if something, if I, if I had to run a bad luck or something. So I think it really depends on the system, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think um, one of the, the reasons that is, is because there's so many decision points mm -hmm. in these field of battle, battle command. Uh, so you feel like, um, yeah, maybe the dice didn't work for me but I made the decision to get me into this circumstance. Right. For sure. So I, I feel, uh, I, I feel less like the dice are uh, plotting against me. Um, right. So I, I think that helps. And, and that's also why, even if you lose, you, you just look at it. And, and what I love about these games is we have never had results where we've looked at it at the end of the game and said, well, that, that just didn't feel right. That right. was wrong. You know, so so that to me is the the really thing, the biggest thing that I'm trying to get out of the games is uh, the overall feel of, and and I hate the word historical accuracy or simulation, but I I want it to feel right. Mm -hmm. so I, I want flow to be right. I want the decision points to feel right. I want the involvement. I want the almost like a like cinematic vignettes that you remember. Like, I, I can remember I had a, a, a very low-rated Austrian artillery battery that just obliterated repeated assaults by the French in a Napoleonic game. Mm -hmm. and they, had, they had no business surviving, none at all. And, and I just kept rolling ridiculously highly, and, and we were tweaking some things on our side uh, on decisions, decision points to allow them to be the focus. Uh, but everybody in that game remembers that depending on the side right. you're on. Like the Austrians, it was a great performance by the unit, and the French were like, that stupid Austrian unit, they had no yeah. business trouble in there. But, you know, I mean, those yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you have me thinking a little bit about the classroom, because, believe it or not, I do sometimes get a similar vibe. Like you're talking about this, this kind of wacky, you know, Austrian battery. I mean, look, I've been a, I've been a classroom teacher for almost 20 years now. And believe me, um, I love content, but when kids come back, they're not talking about individual lessons where, you know, we may have studied like what happened to the American economy after World War II. Like they don't remember that, but what they'll remember are these little weird things, you know, and 
they always remember the games we played, you know? So I think there's a little bit of a connection there. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, you, you can have a game. Um, the, the games I hate are I go, you go, hates a strong word. The games I dislike, the games I distance myself from are, are like I go, you go set turn sequences, do A before B before C before D. Uh, I, I just look at those and say, oh, this would be so much easier to remember, so much more intuitive to play if you just released yourself from that. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it, I call them spreadsheet games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of games when you get that rigid, I look at it and be like, I could just put in a randomizer with the odds and I could, I could play this game on a spreadsheet. Uh, we don't need to be here to do this. Yeah, uh, There's no decision points because the game says, okay, now you move. So what does everybody do? Everybody moves because there's no reason not to. Okay, right. now we fire. Everybody fires because the game doesn't say, well, is this the right time for you to fire? No, because the game says you will fire right now. Just like you will take a morale test. I hate morale tests. That's why I've done some of the things in the rules I've done. Because mm-hmm. uh, morale is, if I look at it in, in my terms as a human, my personal morale is a result of decisions and snap judgments in my mind and my reaction to circumstances. Like if I'm in a, if I'm in an accident, my personal morale and reaction is going to be like, do I get mad? Do I withdraw? Do I uh, con- confront somebody? What, what do I do? Uh, and, and that weighs on a lot of circumstances that you can't possibly explain with a long, 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 long list of modifiers and a special process. So that's that's why it's abstracted in the games as a result of the combat interactions. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, no, it makes total sense to me. So I think at this point, I know you were talking a little uh, earlier about, you know, sort of how you're getting into your, you know, getting into the hobby. Um, But I don't know, given all the things that we just talked about, I think it probably makes sense to take what you were just talking about, like your ideas on games, and I guess maybe tell our audience, um, where did Field of Battle come from? And maybe just a, if if somebody has never heard of the game, like how would you describe it in just a few sentences? Sure. Um, so uh, Field of Battle is a later generation um, outgrowth of uh, original concepts from the rule set PK, P-I-Q-U-E-T, which was originally published in, I think, 1995 uh, by Bob Jones, a good friend of mine. Um, And at at the time, it was was considered a a radical, almost uh, uh, heretical game because of all of the, the, the basic precepts, which were throwaway turn sequences, it's going to be a wild ride. And <laughs> yes. it, 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 there were no guardrails in PK. Uh, so I had many memorable, uh, very fun games with PK. Um, but it, it was very much a, um, uh, like mustard. You, you love it or you hate it. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've gotten the same vibe from people over the years. Um, Cause like where I originally um, heard about PK and it's it's hard to exactly remember where I found this, but it was essentially like an essay that Bob Jones had wrote about yeah. his philosophy behind PK. And I just found it 
fascinating yeah. um, because it just took it. The two things stood out to me and I don't know what your feelings are, but uh, for me, the first thing that stood out was just how radically different it was from pretty much every other game that sort of existed. And the second thing, and I would argue almost more important for me, at least was his, his comment that my games are going to read more like the books that you've read about battles. And I think that that is spot on, whether it's a good game or not. So I don't know yeah. what your take is. No, no, I, I absolutely agree uh, with that. Um, I, I met Bob in 1994, I, I think, and, and this I, I'm a little fuzzy on exactly how it happened, but I think it was at uh, the Colorado Military Historians Game Club um, uh, meeting day. So I was there, and, and um, I think Bob happened to be there, and somebody introduced us. Uh, and, and I published just a handful of articles in the old M1 uh, Midwest Wargamers Association newsletter, and, and that's where Bob had posted a lot of posted, written a lot of articles for. And uh, when he heard my name, it was kind of like, "Hey, Elwan!" And so it was like we hit it off right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what we both wanted in games was very similar. Right. Uh, so, could you describe for our audience um, how the initiative system and how the card system works in PK? Because I think that that's really again, I, I'm not sure what your take would be, um, but to me, like that, that's really where the innovation sort of comes from. Sure. In in the original PK, the the card decks were fairly large. You could have thirty to forty cards. When I say cards, they're sequence cards. So if you think of the turn sequence, the fixed turn sequence that I mentioned, they're basically those broken down into individual, uh, think of them as action cards that you can act on when you turn them from your deck. Uh, the original PK, you, you would roll for initiative to see who went first or who went at all with a D20. So you could get swings from 1 to 19 points to turn your card. So it cost a point to turn a card, cost a point to do something with a unit. Uh, and so uh, one of the things I, I wanted to get away from in the games I wrote after uh, classic PK was what I call the PK fatigue, mm -hmm. counting down all the time, because I would play two hours in a PK game and I'd be shot, man. I, right. I'd be frazzled because I've been counting down and moving the dial to count initiative points. And there was a lot of in-game maintenance things right. that I wanted to streamline. And would you play, when you played PK originally, were these like one-on-one -on -one games or were they more like multiplayer? Uh, both. Uh, I, I would say the one-on-one the -on -one games were typically uh, Bob and I, and then um, the, the larger games were two to three guys on a side. A gotcha. And classic PK tended not to work real well for multiplayer games because... The, the money in the game, the fuel that drives it is the initiative. Right. And if you're over on the far flank and not much is going on, you're not going to get to spend initiative to advance your cavalry, for example. <clears throat> so you're probably going to spend a lot of the game sitting there watching the game. Right. And which is, and again, which is almost like taking the helicopter view, right? I mean, how often do you read in uh, any historical account? of a battle in which everything on one side is moving straight ahead like any war game. So it's like, even though it might not be that fun for that person and totally agree, because I've played an original BK and I've been in that 
kind of situation before where not a lot is happening where I am. Therefore, most of the points are being spent elsewhere, which again, reads more like a real battle, but might not necessarily be fun for that person. So it's like, you know, again, that's why for me, like the helicopter view was always more interesting than maybe being on that boring flank, if that makes sense. No, I I absolutely agree. And and what I found through putting on games at conventions is is as a game master with classic PK, you really have to work to uh, involve everybody, um, whether it's by making jokes or pointing out, hey, you might want to do this or that, because the game doesn't tell you what to do. Uh, right. You have to have an idea of what you want to do and how much you want to, how much of your uh, energy in the game you want to spend to do that. Right. Uh, but I, I think the other thing is that as an individual in a, a classic PK game, you may or may not have a lot of action in that game. Mm-hmm. But you, you almost have to like withdraw yourself and think, I'm, I'm just going to enjoy the whole panorama of the game and the interaction between the sides and the memorable actions. Um, you know, what, what I want to clarify is that, you know, as a game, there, there might have been some, some things here and there that I, I didn't necessarily, they weren't my favorite, but the, the results of the game from a historical standpoint, the outcome, I never felt like I was watching something or played something where at the end I looked at it and said, well, that was just, I might as well have been playing science fiction. It wasn't that kind of result. Right. So again, for our listeners, what I want you to sort of imagine if you've never played this, and by the way, um, I highly suggest that you go out there and do a little bit of, of, of reading and poke around on the internet and you'll, you'll find articles about PK. Um, you know, maybe, uh, Brent a little later, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, his website where you can still get a lot of those rules and stuff. But what you have to picture is imagine having like a, a dial that kind of counts down from a certain number. Right. And, Imagine a deck of cards that it might say move, it might say morale check, it might say fire. So you're only allowed to do what that card says. So if you think about just about any other game out there in which you know when you're going to move, you know when you're going to shoot, you know when you're going to melee, if that is boring to you, then PK and Field of Battle and games like that will probably change your life the way they did for me. Because I was saying to Brent earlier, and Brent, I hope I, hope I don't bore you with this story a second time, but as a wargamer myself back in 2014, um, I had just gotten very sort of burnt out of being able, and I'm not that smart, but like being able to look at a table and look at the two armies and know how the sequence works and just almost knowing, okay, this is more than likely not going to be good for our team or, oh, it might be great. And that's when I sort of stumbled upon, you know, PK and Field of Battle. And I went to Historicon 2014 and met really like one of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet, a gentleman named Peter Anderson, who actually in Connecticut doesn't live too far from me. And he had been running some Field of Battle games along with uh, his buddy Tim Cooper from overseas. And sitting down and playing those games for the first time really opened my eyes to how you can really kind of mess with turn sequence and mess with activation. And all of a sudden you have a game when you never really know exactly what's going to happen, which I guess, Brent, I know you were saying um, with these kinds of systems, you know, sometimes people really can't handle that not knowing part. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, people do this all day long without thinking about it in their, their everyday lives, whether it's in their job or on their weekends. I mean, you don't, you don't wake up and, think, okay, here's exactly the sequence of things that I have to do, and then that's going to repeat. So this morning in my job, I'm going to do 
A, B, C, D. And then I'm going to have lunch and then I'm going to do A, B, C, D. Well, I, I like regularity just like anybody else, but it can be monotonous at times if you're just doing exactly the same thing. So no matter what job you have in your life or in your job, there are going to be opportunities where you, you decide what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, how much time you're going to spend on that. Um, and that's what this, that's the way all of our minds work. That's the way military history is. It, nobody told uh, Grant, okay, now's your move segment, but don't, don't worry about it, Lee. You're going to be able to react to exactly what he did and move right. the same distance right, right after Grant moves to the flank. You know, it just didn't work that way. So right. it was like, okay, what do I want to do? How can I get the jump on my opponent? Um, and that's what I find fascinating about military history is all the decision points where you just look at it and say, if only now, I mean, I can't think of how many times I've been standing on a battlefield and I look at something and I think, ah, no wonder they didn't do it. They couldn't see it. So that's why they didn't make a decision or if seeing the terrain, the way you see it now, you, you just think, why, why did they do that? Yeah. All they had to do was X instead of Y. No, for and sure. Standard turn sequence games, they just don't do that for me. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no friction, there's no fog of war, and, and those are the two things I value most in, in games. Yeah, and look, it, it comes up in every kind of game. I was literally just, I just had some people over the other day where, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this game. I like it a lot. It's called um, Bloody Big Battles. Have you ever played that or heard yeah, of that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to Chris Pringle uh, a few times. Um, he helped me with uh, a couple of school events. Actually, my memory serves right during the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a nice respite for some of the students where we, I, I teach a military history class. So we played a little bit of bloody big battles in a couple of my classes, oh, yeah. believe it or not. Military yeah. history in high school? Yeah, I'm. Oh, look, yeah, you would have been my absolute favorite teacher. <laughs> well, Brent, that is very kind. And look, you know, I I joke I joke around with this with a lot of people, but uh, I have a pretty good gig. <laughs> you know, I mean, I developed some military history courses. Uh, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. I work in the independent school system, and um, there's a lot more. Uh, freedom for, you know, you have somebody who has a passion for something, you can do it well. And, you know, a lot of the kinds of schools that that I've worked for in my life, you know, they'll take that and run with it. So, oh, yeah, we, you know, we learn uh, in one of my particular classes, what we do is essentially study the evolution of linear warfare from the early 1700s all the way to the 1900s. So basically what we do is every unit, we're learning about something new and I always tie a game to it. So um, Bloody Big Battles is one of those games that's it's easy to use in the classroom because there's not a ton of die rolls. There's not a massive amount of modifiers. It's really like, you know, you can teach it very quickly, you know, compared right. to maybe some other games that I enjoy. Um, but, but where I was sort of going with it um, is I ran a Bloody Big Battles game the other day with Peter and a few other people. And one of the conversations that we ended up having is just the fact that as gamers, right, we have total information about the battlefield. So like what you're describing where, you know, you can walk out onto a battlefield like Shiloh or Gettysburg and kind of look out and you can see exactly why troops may have blundered, you know, up getting up to like little round top. But as a gamer, you're never going to do that unless the rules force you or the scenario forces you. And then you're, and then it's just very strange, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, being here in Colorado, we're about, eight to nine hours away 
depending on how many state patrolmen you evade, uh, <laughs> and what you're driving from the little bighorn battlefield. Mm-hmm. So we've been there so many times, I can't even think about it. My, my wife, I love her to death. Uh, I mean, she spent more hours tromping around battlefields than uh, any other wife, I would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've been at the Little Bighorn multiple times. It just fascinates me. I mean, there mm-hmm. are certain battlefields that just resonate with you, where you, it makes the hair on your arms stand up. Mm-hmm. To see that. Uh, but it, it's one of those where you don't really understand it if you haven't been there. Mm-hmm. And when you're there and you follow it through in the sequence that things happen, not the way the battlefield park is, which is like, hey, here's Last Stand Hill, take some photos and you can leave again. Right. Uh, but rather, if you follow in sequence of events, how things occurred, you're like, you see in your in your mind, you can you can see the decision points. And, and you know, I can picture Custer like on his horse on that bluff, like, oh, this isn't going the way I thought. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? And, and, you know, my feeling is that the result was was almost inevitable once he got past a certain point, because there were decisions that based on previous decisions he just kept getting sucked in more and more and more and then i don't think it was this glory hunter uh, political any of that it was just he just rolled poorly and made bad decisions right and, right but if you just look at a map you're not going to get any of that because you can see everything from a map when you're there it's a it's a it's an enormous battlefield but it's very compartmentalized uh, just because of the line of sight and the, the ravines and, and hills and, and the, how, how everything is. So it's, it's a fascinating place to go. And, and, and that's um, what, what I mean by deciding what to do. I, I mean, Custer wouldn't have lost Little Bighorn if it was moved counter move. Right. There, there's no way. I, I mean, he wouldn't have gotten overextended. He would have just been on a hill and he would have decimated the the native americans Uh, right but it didn't happen that way so why didn't it happen that way yeah no that's a good question so i mean in terms of kind of putting all this together um so i feel like our listeners and me right because i'm a listener as well um i feel like i have a good sense now of how it is that you look at historical battles right and then you've got this passion for pk we, did you see the way that you looked at battles reflected well in PK? Would you argue if that was one of your favorite games? To to a point, um, you know, I, I felt that uh, it, it, there's two aspects there. So so even um, classic PK, like I mentioned, to, to me there was a little bit too much bookkeeping, and that that interrupted with the flow as far as keeping track of initiative points. And, you know, and I, and I, to me, functionally in my brain, I didn't think that using the Grant and Lee example again, that Grant was like, hmm, I've got 13 initiative points. What exactly do I want to do with those? Let's start counting them down. Uh, rather, it would, I, I looked at the, as, as an event, kind of as a decision point. Um, and, you know, there's, there used to be a lot of talk about variable length bound games and things mm-hmm. like that which there were all kinds of issues with bookkeeping and keeping track of the clock. So to some extent, PK got away from that and more towards variable length bound, but the, the move distances were still fixed. Right. So in field of battle, 
move distances aren't fixed. I mean, you can get the opportunity to move and your entire command group might, the officer in charge of that might perform poorly, roll a one, his whole command group, which think of it as a brigade division, whatever you want to define it. So that represents those those hiccups where maybe an order didn't get the, the, delivered or he had his chance and he didn't respond accordingly to his orders. He, who knows? I mean, the, the biggest thing in decisions, and everybody will nod their head at this, because the easiest decision is always to not do anything. Mm-hmm. And the hardest decision is to make a decision, because then you got to decide what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. And if you're in a, in a battlefield situation, uh, it, it, and, and I don't want to sound corporate, I, I used to work for a very large corporation. Mm-hmm. So every decision you make in a large corporation uh, if, depending on, on the level you're at there are political uh, implications for your career so every decision you make is like is this going to work out right if i don't do anything maybe this works better maybe if i do something maybe that works better so i think you know armies especially modern armies you know, so say from 1600 and later uh everything is they're they're political enemies they're very mm-hmm. corporate. And the, the later on you go in history, the more corporate they become as far as structure. Right. Um, so PK, I, I, I wanted to improve that field. And, and that's where field of battle really started to diverge from it. And there's been, like you said, this on field of battle three and the first version got about 80% of the way of what I wanted. The second version got about the another 10% of exactly what I wanted. And then field of battle three came out and that was, that'll be the last edition of field of battle. Right. Um, because you know, it, what it does different than PK is, uh, each, each, uh, commander in chief of each army, uh, has a die size associated with his command ability. So that is important because you roll off against each other at the start of each initiative. And the difference in that die roll is the number of cards that you can play. And the higher rolling side gets to go first or second, depending on what they want to do. Um, but the the swing is not as much as it was in PK. Right. Um, it's more so playable. Now, it's more playable. Now you're between 8 and, and 12. Right. So the max difference is going to be 11 between one and 11. So you've already started to compress it down. So it's there's now there's some, there's some uh, bumpers on the side of the road to keep you from going off wildly. Um, and, and the, the cards there, you, you aren't counting for individual units. The in, uh, initiative points are just to turn the card basically to say, okay, what's, what's the next possible occurrence decision point going to be? Uh, so those are broken down into things like uh, the fire, move, uh, you know, melee, those basic kind of things. Um, now, the one thing that's different is you, you don't have to fire when the fire card comes up. We find out in practice during a game, most people husband their, their fire, then they'll, they'll get to the fire card, and then they'll be like, okay, now I'm going to fire because I can remove that fire marker immediately. And then I'm, I can decide when to fire if I'm unmarked as firing rather than just listening to the game. The game doesn't tell you to fire. The game doesn't tell you what decisions are good. Uh, if you make bad decisions, you'll get punished for them, which I love. 
Right. I, mean, I agree. I totally agree. Work. And I also think too that at least, you know, when I've introduced people that had never uh, played, you know, either PK or field of battle before, I think that's one of the hardest things for them to wrap their brains around where it's like, you can literally fire anytime you want, <laughs> right? right? It's just a matter of when you reload. So for our listeners, just try to picture this. So um, in terms of what Brent's describing, imagine if you're playing a Napoleonic game, whatever scale, um, you know, Napoleon might be a D12, right? For his, you know, leadership. And then, you know, uh, Archduke Charles might be a D10. So essentially what you do at the beginning of the turn is you roll off against one another. And let's say the French win by a difference of five. Each team basically pulls five cards out of roughly uh, like a 30 card deck. And then again, you put those five cards in front of you. And every time you turn them, it, more, most of the time it applies to the whole army. So if you get a move card to start, it means all of your individual commands, whether they're brigades or divisions, all of them get a chance to move. And what Brent and I are talking about is the fact that you can literally fire whenever you want. So if you have an artillery battery, if you're the Austrians and you have an artillery battery and the French are advancing towards you, you can opt to fire. And when you do, you put some smoke in front of it. And that smoke can't be removed until you pull what's called an artillery firepower card. So again, Brent, you keep using the word decisions. And one of the reasons that I really like Field of Battle is I feel like I'm constantly making them, which to me is what makes a game really fun. And, and, and I love hearing that because that, that's, that's exactly what I wanted. Um, you know, two of my favorite cards in the game in Field of Battle and in uh, Battle Command uh, are uh, the tactical advantage and the lull card because of what they do. Oh, yeah. They're very simple. They're very simple explanations. So just to explain tactical advantage, when you pull that, you can hold it as long as you want, and then you can modify any die roll up one die size. So it, it's a way of, of very much abstracting situations that uh, you, you can't explain. So, so if you're going to play that tactical advantage card, so you say, okay, this going back to a Napoleonic example, that that unit of cross uh, uh, is is attacking my British infantry line. So I'm normally at a D D10 for combat. So I'm going to play my tactical advantage card and modify my die for firing up to a D12. Gives me a better chance of hitting and uh, possibly uh, uh, pushing the uh, cavalry away. So what, what does that symbol symbolize? I, I mean, it's not that suddenly they're better trained. It's just the circumstances. And, and believe me, it may not make a difference. You, mm -hmm. you might roll so, so well that it wouldn't have made any difference. Or you might roll so poorly that you just wasted that tactical advantage card. Uh, maybe it means that there was a, a gust of wind that, uh, that cleared some smoke out and you got a better view of them charging. Or, or maybe it's that... Uh, uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, the, the NCOs had better control for specific volleys. Maybe they saw them coming long enough. Then time is very fluid in these games. Mm -hmm. it's very, it, it, because the games are very episodic. Um, so it, maybe it's the decision of exactly when did they fire. So just like time is, is episodic, distances, distances are still set. But we aren't talking about the telescoping distances of like our onboard artillery and flames of war or anything like that. So distances are set, but it's just that 
Uh, and I'll get back to the movement here in a second. To no, sure. We have all the time in the world, Mr. Yeah. Brento. Don't tell, worry about I mean, it. I, I, I love this. Hobby. I mean, well, that's I, why you're on the podcast. That's the, <laughs> yeah. I, I, just, I love talking about this stuff. Right. So, uh, so, so it's a way to modify your chances to say, okay, I'm going to give them a little bit better chance and we'll see if it helps or not. And so people tend to husband that cards, those cards, tactical advantage card. And sometimes they, have to be discarded because the game turn is over and they didn't use it. Uh, but the other one is lull. So in, in the case where you're rolling initiative um, and you turn a lull card, uh, what that means is if I turn it, I now give the opportunity to my opponent to see the initiative for one card. So we roll against each other again. And if he beats me, now he gets to pull one card from his deck. So it's kind of, it, it's kind of a way for him to have the opportunity to, uh, interrupt my my decision loop um, and and seize the initiative. However, briefly, uh, and and sometimes it, you know you could he could draw a whole card and it goes back to you and to try to win that. Or maybe it's an insignificant card, or maybe it's exactly what he needed. And those are the moments you remember because everybody's like, oh no, he got a move card. Right. Absolutely. So, and from experience, right. There's nothing worse than like when everything is going your way and that low card comes out and the enemy gets right. like a move and it's right. like, oh God. And then it, it, it sometimes it might even feel like it's not even your turn anymore because so much right. happens. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and, I, and I mentioned move. So uh, I, I hate fixed move distance games um, just because I've, I've always believed that you can never have enough movement in a game. Because mm -hmm. uh, because movement is another one of those things. Without movement and and enough movement, uh, it it reduces the decision uh, even on just moving. Because if somebody says, "Okay, every move you're going to move six inches," you go, "Ah, there's six inches. There's six inches." There's no decision in that. You're you're just mechanical, right? Mm -hmm. They don't need you to play the game to do that. Um, so field of battle and battle command, the, the command group, which is an assemblage of units under a rated commander, uh, you roll his command die, which is anywhere from an 8 to a D12 plus 1, which is just a 12-sided that you add 1 to. And um, he rolls versus a D6, and the results of that, by how much he wins, determines how many move segments he gets. So if he rolls a 1, he doesn't move at all. He just sits there stupid and happy as a clam he doesn't mm -hmm. care what's going on i am not moving um he could roll get one move segment two move segments or three move segments uh, which some people that, that's i think the most jarring things about the games is is people are all of a sudden what do you mean cavalry could potentially go 36 inches it's like yep they could yeah uh, and, and and that represents them seizing the initiative uh, them taking advantage of hidden ground that you can't represent on the tabletop, uh, which is another reason if you're an infantry unit and you've got cavalry, even though it looks like it's a long way away, yeah, I wouldn't be wasting shots willy-nilly uh, because they're they're kind of uh, uh, like a threatening hammer. They're, they're a, like a fleet in being. Uh, I mean, they're just, they're a threat, so you have to account for that. And in typical move counter-move games, there is none of that. They aren't a threat until they get within one move distance. Right. So I, I really love that. And I, I'm sorry for rambling here, but the other, the other thing I, I, I hate in games is somebody or the game telling you 
when to do a morale test. I hate morale. Tests. So where does that come from? Where, where like, I, I have to know, like, was there a moment where you sort of played enough games where you're taking these sort of, um, I don't know, inorganic morale tests and you were sort of like, as a game designer, I'm done with this. Well, I, I would think it probably goes back to the, the old uh, pre DBA WRG games. Oh God. You know, that now, Brent, this is a rabbit hole that we could, we could be down for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, it was like, okay, I'm going to fire. Here's all the modifiers. And now I have to take a morale test. Oh, Oh, not only that, but I get to take a pre melee morale test to see if, if he stands and then if he stands, I have to take another test to see if I close. And right. then after we have the combat, then he has to, whoever lost has to take another relay. Why? So I, I, being an engineer, I really want to streamline processes. Right. I mean, that's, that's how I think. Uh, and, and repetitiveness and non-intuitive things just drive me up a wall. Right. So, that's why in the combat results, you know, you've already got the, the difference in the die rolls. You've weighted the, the odds based on the relative uh, sizes of the dies that are being rolled. And, and then it finally struck me in, in uh, Field of Battle originally that, uh, well, now the other thing that you can introduce in this is if the, the loser rolls even or odd and if the winner rolls even or odd. So when you start to add all of those up, you get this wonderful matrix of statistically sound results where you can say, this is what I want. And it's all boiled into the, the die roll results. There's no additional thing. And, and additionally, you start looking at the modifiers for most of these morale tests. Mm -hmm. You're just applying mm -hmm. the same morale modifiers that you already applied in a combat. Right. Just redoing right. it again. So why not make that one result one role and one result, which speeds up the games immensely. Right. What you're talking about reminds me, oh, and don't worry, we're going to go back to the WRG thing in a second, but yeah, what you're, what you're sort of describing reminds me a lot when I think of um, really innovative games and game designers, you know, what you're describing sounds a lot like what Sam Mustafa does in a lot of his games where it's almost like it used to be back in the day, right? You know, whether you're talking about the seventies, the eighties or the nineties, where it almost seemed like gamers wanted to make 10 die rolls to figure out what happens to something. It's almost like, you know, I just think of really kind of like old school games. So don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with old school games. I mean, my one of my favorite games is Sword in the Flame, which was written in 1979. So, um, but it but does- that was a radical game for its time. This is true, right? No, very true. It definitely was. Um, you know, I, I think of somebody like you, somebody like Sam Mustafa, where it's like streamlining, you know, streamlining rules where instead of having to worry about a thousand charts and a thousand different die rolls to figure out whether your cavalry charges and whether the infantry gets in a square, it's just like, make it one roll and then move on to more gaming, you know? Right. And, and it so, also makes more drama because everybody knows what's involved in that role. I mean, yeah. people watch that role because they're like, going back to the example of the cross unit charging the French, the, the British line. So let's say they're in melee everybody in the game is watching that because they right. want to see are they gonna are they gonna ride right through these guys are they gonna be bounced off who's who's gonna be decimated right. it's got a distinct dramatic result and effect yeah. 
So, so that word drama, right? So look, I'm not going to necessarily poke fun at Phil Barker. I mean, I think that as a, as a designer, he's enormously important for the things that we do. Right. I mean, I'm 41. So I started, my dad got me into gaming like the very, very early nineties and as being like a little precocious person walking around, like, you know, a lot of the HMGS conventions. I mean, I got into DBA very early. Like we, I think we still have the original, you know, version 1.0. But what I always remembered, like walking around and looking at, you know, WRG tables, regardless of how luminary of a game it was or is, I don't know. Like, I feel like I would walk by and I would see tables looking one way. And then an hour later, I would go back and they're still quibbling over, you know, some, you know, some percentage or some like, you know, protractor style movement. And I would always like be like, dad, like, why is nothing happening, you know, and then you kind of hear the stories of how many iterations of that game had come out and how often it would change. And it's like one version, it's like cavalry is really great. Then the next version, it's infantry, you know, hence where I guess where DBA came from in a lot of ways. Right. And, and I think that's, that's Bill's greatest achievement. I, I think you can quibble about the, the language and the quirks and trying to completely understand this phrase or that phrase. Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's part of the fun, right? Of anything written yeah. by uh, Phil Barker. I mean, I, look, anytime you need to have a group of people that actually like write a compendium to understand a set of rules. I mean, like that in and of itself is pretty funny and right. I guess amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just think it's a, it's a very, it was a very innovative game at its time. I mean, yeah. look how many games have, have been spinoffs of that kind of procedure. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's a, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant game. It was, yeah. it was, revolutionary yeah dba in particular like um in, in in all of its different iterations because again i don't know i don't know what you think but i mean dba definitely changed from version to version but i don't necessarily know it was as extreme as you know some of the you know the the wrg changes i don't know what you think but yeah i, I think you're you're correct i think it was just a few factors here and there and and you know i'm, I'm not a dba player uh you know i appreciate the game but so i don't know what the the changes have been from version to version but i i from my perspective they seem to be fairly minor yeah uh, i think some of that's the for games that are used in competitions mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole different um uh, construct to deal with as a game designer my games i don't want them used in a competition yeah uh, i mean i i want people to have fun and it, it's while everybody likes to win you know, I, I don't want somebody's self-worth to feel uh, imposed upon because they they lost a, a game that I wrote. I mean, that's not what they're for. Yeah, no, totally. And look, there's a there's a world. I'm not a competitive gamer. Like I'm, it's like abhorrent to me to be honest, um, because of the amount of effort that it takes to understand those competitive games. Not even so much in terms of rules, but like in terms of list construction and, and, and all of that. And don't get me wrong though, for people who really enjoy that kind of facet of the game, it's like all the power to you, you know, but it, you know, it, it is interesting. Like you can almost tell immediately when a game is meant for tournament play and when a game isn't like, there's just a feel and flavor to it. Right. Yeah. You mentioned lists. That's my, uh, one of my pet peeves. I would put that like if, if turns rigid turn sequences are, are number one, my second pet peeve or, army lists mm -hmm. uh, so i 
you know, I, I love writing rules. I love developing them. Uh, even the writing part can be tedious, but it's still good to see what you can clean up and, and, and streamline. But writing army lists, uh, I, I just hate doing for two reasons. One, no matter what you put in there, somebody's going to say, well, you forgot the uh, this or that uh, unit, and they were very, okay, fine. Uh, but you know, the farther back in time you go, the more of a joke army lists are, because in ancient times, we, we don't even know where most of those battles occurred. So you can't even geographically exactly locate them. But now we're going to have an army list that says, like, I could have up to 35% of this troop type. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, to me, it, it just becomes absurd at, at some point. And, that, and that's where I think that comes from that um, competition uh, yeah. mentality. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, the, the army lists I provide are basically just like, here's some, some really wide, crude guidelines to help you create an army. Mm -hmm. more towards if you don't have any idea what would have been in uh, a french army in 1760 now here's some basic percentages to get you close so you're not gonna show up on the table with 100 percent cavalry yeah <laughs> yeah i mean sometimes i think like historical oobs can be helpful i mean for me at least that's yeah. that's usually the direction i go like and again i don't know about you as like what your preferences are i mean i I sometimes will do historical battles, especially if there's a set of rules that sort of um, that lay out a scenario nicely, which again, like I think bloody big battles does a good job of that, you know, in terms right. of like scenarios. But at the same time, I mean, they are very constraining, you know, especially like when it comes to terrain setup and do I have enough terrain for this? So it's almost like I, me personally, I like using real OOBs from real battles, but I like abstracting the actual battlefield a bit. I don't, again, I don't know what your, what you or your gamer group does. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I've, I've tried a few historical scenarios and, and inevitably if you say, okay, here's the sunken lane, everybody knows like, oh, well, I'm going to defend the sunken lane uh, because that's what happened. We all know how great that was. Right. Uh, as soon as you have that, inevitably, that's where things happen yeah. uh, in, in the game. Um, and my, my second, there, there, there's several reasons why I rarely do uh, historical scenarios. Uh, one is just the time to create them. Uh, I would rather use my time on working on new rules and concepts and playing, uh, coming up with ideas. Um, so I guess that's a basic laziness on my part. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the second is that uh, you, you, it's kind of, it's one of my things that I dislike about historical board games. You know, there's some really creative ones out there, but what I find is, is I'm always, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. it. It's like I've got this, this uh, uh, reluctance to, to anybody that says you're going to do it exactly this way which is like, okay, here's where you're going to line up the troops and the, everything in the, the, the victory conditions is going to force you to do this because you have to take point A, B, and C in three turns or 12 turns to win. And I just look at that and I'm like, no general ever thought that way. Right. Nobody ever said, that. here's exactly where I'm going to set up. Here's exactly where they're going to set up. And this is exactly how you win. I'm sure most of them would have liked to know uh, that if, if I can just get to this crossroads in two hours, I will win and they will withdraw. 
Even if right. he got there in two hours, that doesn't mean the other side is going to withdraw and the battle's over and that he won anything. It just means he got there in two hours. Uh, so, so that's another reason historical scenarios don't interest me. And the third, you know, I've walked so many battlefields that you can't recreate that exact terrain on a tabletop. And it's a fence. It, definitely at the micro level, but even if you, you zoom out to the macro level, it becomes very hard to simulate exactly what effect that had on line of sight and decision points, which were just crucial in the actual right. event. Plus, you know, I, I love, like I said, I love everything about this hobby. So I, I love really good looking terrain. And I, I've seen so many historical scenario games where I've been at the battlefield and I'm looking at it and I'm like, this doesn't look at all like Shiloh. <laughs> so right. This isn't, this isn't, you know, fill in the blank. Right. What so, I find really hard is, you know, simulating the effect of terrain on the tabletop because don't get me wrong like you know you can give like a plus one modifier for a unit on a hill or something like that um but i've always found that the time and effort that it takes to making different scale hills so maybe this is a level one hill or this is a level two hill it had far more of an impact in reality than it ever does in a game i've yet to find really any game that 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 can do that. So again, it's like using that example from earlier, like where like I've been to Gettysburg and I've walked up Little Round Top, you know, like walked up there yeah. the way that the Confederate soldiers did. And it's like there are no modifiers in the world that can really re represent that or frankly, like represent the open ground that, you know, Pickett's Charge goes across, you know, um, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of one of my, uh, my my other hobby is my wife and I own motorcycles. We each have a Harley, and um, so we we don't ride in the mountains in Colorado because there's far too many tourists, too much traffic, too much gravel that washes across the road. So we tend mm -hmm. to white ride out east and on fairly uh, quiet highways and, and uh, county roads. So that's a lot of lot of time out in the open, which I, I love riding the bikes. Um, but inevitably when I'm riding, I, I'm looking at a crest of a hill and I'm thinking, how would I defend that? How, <laughs> right. how, how far back do I have to be before I can see somebody past the, that crest or, or what is the military crest there? Or if I had a battery of guns, I'd put them over here and Oh, what if this? So I, I don't know. I like I said, I'm, I'm so embedded in this. That's just what I think when I'm, when I'm out like that. But I find that that's, that's very helpful when I'm, in my mind trying to figure out how I want to write terrain rules and, right. and line of sight rules. One of the other things I was thinking a little bit about when you were talking about, you know, like your distaste for morale, um, again, for our listeners, Field of Battle is one of those game systems that I think handles how a game ends in a really, really interesting way. So maybe I'll describe it a little bit and then Brent, you can sort of jump in. So for those of you that are experienced gamers out there, right? You know, a lot of times when uh, you're playing a game, you might have X amount of turns to to win the battle, right? And winning the battle, like Brent said, might be, oh, I have to take that hill or I have to take this particular position. The way that field of battle works, you have X amount of morale chips in your army. Every time one of your units essentially takes what's called a UI or unit integrity damage, um, let's say a unit loses one, you take one little chip out of your cup and it's essentially spent. And when you have none left, 
then what happens is you get into the end phase of the game. Now, sometimes people will give up at that moment, but in reality, the really the way it's supposed to work is you turn an army morale card. When that happens, you basically have to take a test, and if you fail the test, you lose the game. So what I've always found is that, again, I like the word organic when it comes to games because you don't necessarily have to label a particular place on the battlefield as the important place. It's going to happen no matter what. And then ultimately, when that fight happens in that particular part of the battlefield and you start losing a ton of chips, that dictates the fact that, well, that's a really important place and the battle's going to be won or lost there. So, you know, uh, you know, I'd tip your hat to you, Brent, for that, because I think it's a really cool mechanic. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And, and you described it exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I wanted it to be uh, dramatic when that happens. So it, it also, you know, you, you know, when you're starting to run out of chips, uh, that, that your army's morale, you know, you've, you've taken a beating uh, on the battlefield. You, you've lost a lot of uh, a lot of resources. And uh, so you tend to see players start to get a little bit more conservative or maybe they're like, yeah, I got to go now. This is it. This is my chance. Uh, and, and to me, the really fascinating thing in, in watching games, you know, like here in my basement on, on when the group is here, is, is I watch from both sides, so I know how many chips are down. So I'm watching mm -hmm. these guys, watching the body language, and uh, it's just fascinating because I know one group is out. They're out of chips, and they're just hoping that that Army morale card isn't coming up. Uh, but the other side is like they're worried too because they've only got two chips. You know, so the, the side that's out of chips, they're thinking, oh, man, I, I think we've lost. And the other side, they're thinking, oh, man, we're about to lose. Right. It's so exciting. You get to that, yeah, you get to that point where, like, so we, we see, like, one or two chips, you get to that tipping point where a side might be down to zero, but they don't know the other side's at one. And all of a sudden, they cause a, a loss of two chips to the enemy, and now they only have one chip, so they have to give a chip to the, the first side. So when you're out of chips and you take a loss, you give chips to the other side. So you're starting to build the confidence of that other side that things are going their way. That's what that represents. So you see in some of the really um, knockdown drag-out fights we've seen that are really dramatic, you start to see those chips going back and forth, and you just want to try to build it up so uh, I'm safe when my army morale card comes up. Uh, so there, there's, I, I love that because there's, there's definitely that, that conclusion, you know, that, that um, crescendo of, of action and the, the decision point where, okay, the army morale card comes up. So then you roll your command die versus the opponent rolling a D12. So it's already weighted against you that you're going to win it. And yeah. then there's a lot of drama when one side wins, you know, everybody on that side is like, hey, we're still alive. You know, it's not like, okay, we're going to play for six turns. And after six turns, we'll add up the number of troops around the table and congratulations, you won. You know, it, it's not like that. I mean, you always know in, in field of battle and battle command, you always know who won. Yeah, It, it might be a close victory. It might be a pyrrhic victory, but you always know who won. And, and yeah. I love that. And, and that that is also why I don't do... Uh, traditionally uh, historical scenarios because the, the way these games work, you, you really, you know, the, the people lining up in a line on each side of the table, you can do that fine in this game because the game will, will make those lines turn and react as things go. So the players create the scenario. 
That's what I love about this. The the initiative swings and the players' decisions create the scenario. Yeah, they decide what's important to them based on where they're attacking. So, you, in my mind, that makes more sense because uh, the the commander of a side might look at it and he might say, "We're getting killed by that grand battery on the hill. We've got to take that." So then that game is going to focus on the combat to take out that grand battery on the hill and, you know, associated stuff around it and maybe some other actions on the flank. But that's probably going to drive where most of the, the unit integrity is lost and the army morale chips are lost. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, again, thinking about how battles read, that sounds a little bit, right? Like when war gamers read about what happened at Austerlitz and kind of, you kind of say to yourself, how could all of those um, troops, you know, not see what was happening, not see what Napoleon was sort of doing, not see like you're winning on one flank and troops will start crossing from, from literally right in that battle from one flank to the other. That's kind of right. what you're describing. And I've seen that happen in field of battle games because again, like maybe being a little bit gamey, it's like sometimes you can kind of get a feel like, you know, kind of like, you know, some of the cards that came out almost like playing blackjack. And it's like, I'm going to go like I'm actually going to send troops from one side of the board to the other. If I get the right move, it might pay off and it might not, which you don't always see in a lot of I go, you go types of games. Right. It's, it's all about uh, seizing that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, even even in field of battle, you know, like after the game, you know, we always have like a, a, just a, a discussion about what happened. What could what could we have done better to win? Why did you attack over here? I, I love that part. I just yeah. absolutely love it because players will be like, ah, oh, I'd only moved my cavalry division earlier because if I had to put them on your flank and just held them over there, then you couldn't have assaulted my infantry because that infantry brigade was terrible. And right. I knew they weren't. And that's that's where you beat me. But you know, I, I didn't move my cavalry fast enough, or the stupid commander kept rolling ones, or he rolled poorly for movement. To, to me, you can all you can always kind of like zoom out and look at it and say like, oh well, obviously you know in dispatches written after the battlefield, you know, uh, everybody's going to blame the cavalry uh, <laughs> commander, you know, and he didn't he didn't respond in time to save our valiant infantry brigade, right? Uh, so well, I, I, just, a- I just love that. Yeah, a lot of the learning, you know, from games comes out in that debrief. Um, you know, it, it sounds a lot like the classroom, actually, you know. So, for example, what's the point of taking a midterm? And I literally tell my students this every year, what is the point of taking it if we're not going to talk about it when it's over? Then it right. really becomes almost like this archaic thing, like, why are we even doing this? But if you have that conversation, if you say, okay, well, like, what did you notice? Like, what was the hardest part? What did you notice about your studying? In a lot of ways, that's why I think that games and education kind of dovetail with one another in a lot of respects. Right. So, and, and, and you know, you know, I'm I'm a, a firm uh, believer in in after action reviews. You know, in, in uh, the engineering world, it's always great after a project. What went right? What went wrong? What would, could we have improved? What if we'd done A instead of B? Right. You know, and, that, and that's very. A military way too, but in the in the games, uh, these games are you get better at them the more you play them because you, you recognize opportunities, you see things, you, you realize that the game isn't telling you what to do. You have to tell the game what I'm going to do. Yeah, uh, and and so it, 
people become less passive the more times they play the games, I think. Yeah. And to make another connection, because you're kind of just in some way you're describing a lot of what I do with uh, my nonprofit, HMGS Next Gen Inc., uh, sort of a, a little shameless promotion here. But, you know, when you put people into a game, so if you're talking about your engineering firm, for example, and your team, you know, it it is interesting to me, like when you take a game, whatever kind of game it is, and it's like, here are the systems that you're going to use to figure out how to get a job done. I always find that it's a great training tool because when you put a person, I know you're not a fan of the word simulation, but when you put a person into that situation, they've got to make decisions based on, you know, confinement of of rules and systems and things like that. I find that people can learn a lot about themselves. And again, I feel like I can learn a lot about somebody the second they pick dice up. You know, you can tell a lot about somebody. So, right. Who doesn't love rolling dice? Oh, for sure. Like, I haven't really... I mean, I've met people that don't that aren't huge gamers, but, I mean, everybody loves to roll a D6. And by the way, you just reminded me about um, something super important that we haven't talked about yet. Again, like, I can't... Other than Dungeons & Dragons, I can't think of another game that really does this. So, for those of you that are still intently listening, I'm sure. Um, Field of Battle, the way that they use modifiers, this is not a game in which, oh, I have a D6 and I need a three to hit. And then you have to go through a litany of modifiers to determine um, how that D6 is modified. It's like, okay, well, I need a five to hit or I need a two to hit or yada, yada, yada. The way that Field of Battle works um, is you almost ha- you basically have like that traditional D&D's uh, brick of dice, like where you have a D20 all the way to a D4. So every time there's a modifier, you don't modify what you need to roll. You modify the die type. So again, Brent, I'm sure this is going to swallow your head a little bit, but one of my favorite things to do when I travel, so I know you were saying that you and your wife, you know, you know, do a lot of motorcycling. You know, when my when my wife and I travel and I always find like the gaming store, I always buy a brick of what I essentially call like field of battle dice. And then I put like a little slip of paper in there from where I got it from, oh, um, cool. which is a really, yeah, which is fun. I just love buying dice, you know, but in all seriousness, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, other than people getting confused by D tens and D eights. So, yeah, so, so, what, what, so I, I have to credit Bob Jones for that. That was the core of the original PK was the right. multi-sized dice. And, and that is so, it takes so many calculations and, and uh, tediousness out of a game to just roll a dice. And plus it's easy to, to see, you know, you're holding a D12. The other guy's got a D4. That D12 feels big. I mean, you're just like, man, I, I got it going on. I'm rolling this D12. Sure, like I never, <laughs> I never okay. thought of it that way. You're right. It really does. A D4, you know? you're like, oh, there's my D4. You know, so it, it, there's a lot of, of, uh, personal morale when you're rolling a d4 versus some guy that's rolling a d10 right but it's it's very easy and, and like i said st- it's very easy to look at the statistics um of the combinations of dice to, to make sure that the way the game is set up and the, and the results so that you're not going to be uh, have some really bizarre outcome that can't be can't be explained um but but uh, just a quick aside, the way we get away, uh, all the dice on a, on each side are the same color. So like, for example, I might have all gray and all blue, mm-hmm. but the eight-sided dice are orange on each right. side. Right. So you always know that's the D8. Yeah. So there's no confusing. 
Yeah, it's funny. You you have you're bringing a lot of memories back because, like I said, you know, I, I think I I may have started the podcast by saying this, but I say so many different things that I sometimes forget. Um, I first got introduced to this game system all the way back in 2014, and I cannot stress enough. Um, if you've never been on um, Peter Anderson's blog on the internet, it's called BlundersOnTheDanube.com. I mean, it is a treasure trove of information about everything, you know, PK and uh, and Field of Battle because he's such a connoisseur of it. But I remember bringing, you know, playing Field of Battle with him and bringing it to my school. And my students loved it. They loved how wild it is. And again, I, I want to use that phrase carefully, though, because I don't want listeners to think that there's that many drastic shifts in the game. Because in a, it's such a playable game. And I do want to circle back to that idea of going from PK to the field of battle system. But man, kids, they get worked up, you know, flipping the cards and getting to roll different kinds of dice. Um, you know, you would always have, you know, that, that uh, you know, one student who was like, I can't handle the swings, you know, give me back my, you know, I want to know when I can move, you know. But generally speaking, it was very tongue in cheek, you know, kids, you know, I ran AWA, AWI games, Napoleonic games. I mean, you you name right. it, I probably ran it. So with Field of Battle. So yeah, um, great to hear. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there is something to be said about putting out a set of rules and whether 10 people play or a thousand people play. I mean, you, you have certainly created something. Frankly, I feel like if you promoted yourself more, um, I think a lot more people would play. But again, we talked about this before, you know, uh, we really started recording. A lot of innovators don't do that. You know, it's usually the people who put out stuff that's not so great because they want to make a buck. Whereas somebody like you, Brent, who, you know, you took PK and turned it into this really playable thing. Um, you're very low key in a lot of ways. That's a compliment. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I am low key. No doubt about that. Uh, but, you know, I, it, it's kind of nice to be like a hidden gem sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and uh, advertising is great. Um, you know, I, I did it for a while um, in the early stages when I when I had PK Inc. Um, but you know, I, I'm not one to show up on news groups and and or or just drop the name everywhere I can. Um, you know, I, I I like the word of mouth. It's kind of like if, if it interests people, they'll find it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that whether they see it on. And it's easier now because blogs, everybody has their favorite blogs that they check or listen to news groups or podcasts. Right. So it's very good that way. Um, you know, we're, we're not associated. We don't have figure lines. We aren't a figure manufacturer. So we, we don't get automatic uh, publicity that way. Um, you know, and the, the flip side of all of that is, is I, I can do what I want. Right. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not controlled. You know, I, I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the, the advertising for, for this or that product or upcoming products. It's, it's, I do what I want to do. Right. And, and, and I love that. And it's not your uh, job. I mean, that's a really oh, big difference yeah. too. Cause look, I'm, I talked to Rick Priestley, right? I talked to Rick Priestley, um, uh, you know, in our, in our first podcast. And, you know, he talked a lot about that. Like when, you know, when hobby kind of becomes your job and the way in which money then kind of pushes your creative ideas. Um, 
I'm not denigrating that. I get why Warlord Games and Games Workshop and these big companies, because a lot of these companies now, they put all the figures out, they put all the dice out, they literally put everything out because they're a business. I get all of that. But you're right. You have a kind of freedom that those companies obviously don't have. And I know I'm stating the obvious, but I do think it needs to be stated. Yeah, and, and I don't think you can, you can't force creativity under a timeline. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people are, my friend, <laughs> these days in the gaming world. You know, it's like, oh, why did that edition come out? Is that really necessary? You know, and look, again, Rick opened my eyes to something that I always thought about, but it's like they're developing the new edition of a game. And I know I'm using like a they. What I mean is like more like corporate entities, right? They're right. developing the new set of rules before the current set of rules is even out, which is was like eye-opening to me. It's like changing rules literally for the sake of keeping your business model going, which is right. crazy to me. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I um, understand, you know, especially like in the games workshop world, I mean, these massive corporation, you know. And, right. Uh, you know, it's a business. It's a business first. I'm not to say anything about their, their products. The rules are the, the figures. Figures are fantastic. I, they are. I've ever uh, any Warhammer, but I look at the figures and I'm like, wow. Yeah, that's no, they are incredible. I mean, and again, it's it's kind of what I say to Rick. It's like, look, you know, how however you want to cut that cake up, you go to any major city in the world. And to be able to say that you can find the Games Workshop store, that says something. I mean, I just saw a photo um, from, I guess it's, I guess, in, again, I'm not up to speed anymore with, with a ton of GW stuff, but, um, you know, like their big grand tournaments that they have out in Vegas and there's like a thousand people there. I mean, when do you really see that everybody playing the same game other than maybe like something like magic, the gathering or something along those lines. So you can't take yeah. a ton away from them, you know? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. They've been, they've been great for the hobby. Uh, I mean, even if it's not historical, they've helped grow the hobby base. Yeah. You know, ultimately, the hope is, well, maybe some of those guys will decide, I like playing and I like history, so let me give the historical game a shot. No, totally. And I think that, again, like, I, you know, I hope it doesn't sound, you know, for listeners that I'm necessarily knocking a company like Warlord Games, because, I mean, I have a lot of those rule sets. And I, I mean, in fact, like the big Borodino game that I ran a number of years ago was with Black Powder. So, I mean, you know, and we had something like 35 or 40 students all wargaming. So, I think that ultimately Games Workshop kind of creating that sort of corporate model, if it means that more companies are going to come out and sell historical miniatures, all the power to them. I think that's ultimately a good thing. So Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not knocking them either. When, when, I, when I said you can't, you can't put a timeline on creativity, from my perspective, I, I know how I work when I'm writing a set of rules. So, for example, the, the newest set, Battle Command, when I did it, I, I was just reacting to some things that I'd seen in Field of Battle that I wanted to find a way to tweak. Mm -hmm. There were some changes I wanted to make. And it, it was, um, I don't remember the occasion, but I'd set up a game and we had to cancel the game group for some schedule conflicts. So I had all the troops on the table, all the trains set up, so I just started playing with some things. And, I, and I'd been working on uh, some concepts for a... a a World War II uh, air game and a sailing naval game. Mm -hmm. So I've been noodling on some things there and you're just like notes on scraps of paper. So when I was, I thought, well, I got all this stuff set up. I'll just play this game. So I thought, oh, play around and see what this is. So that's where the action card 
concept and the idea of sequence, smaller sequence decks. So I just started looking at it and wait a minute, I can cut the deck by two thirds and it's still all here, but if I re reintroduce all of those decision points as even more decision points on action cards, that's going to eliminate all of this early pregame stuff about marching on and stacking the deck to do this or that to set up a scenario. Uh, it also eliminates, um, virtually eliminates, I should say, the chances that you're going to have any card that you turn that's totally unusable. Right. In, in Battle Command, almost every card, you're going to go like, well, I can use that. Yeah. At least I can use that. Um, so it fixed all of that for me, and I, I just I just love it. But that basically was me, the start of that a couple of years ago, was just me solo on a table just moving stuff around rolling dice going well that didn't work throw that away okay well this didn't work well i really like that no what if i did this and oh yeah so at the end of that game i probably had i don't know 80 percent of stuff scribbled down and in my mind of what i wanted the the new game to be and then it right. was you know and then i had the guys over like the next month and i I created the set of cards and I said, okay, we're going to try something new. And this is what it is. And they were looking at me like, oh man, here we go again. But after we got done, they were like, we love it. I love it. This is, this is better than Seal of Battle. This is, I like it for these reasons. And I was like, exactly. That's exactly the, re the re reaction yeah. that I want. So it's very cool, by the way, that um, I'm not a hundred percent sure when this podcast is going to air, but um I, I again like I feel like this is, is this the first time publicly you're talking about your new rules. I think it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which is very uh, yeah, it's exciting. And so so the only way the the only place that people know about what's going on is uh, on my blog, which I haven't updated for a couple of years now, I'm afraid. Uh, but you know, I'm very active on our Facebook page and then the the groups page. Yeah, uh, Facebook page probably more than anything. Um, so those are the people that that know about it. And then on Military Matters advertised it uh, last week for their their new product releases. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the extent of advertising. No, that's great. When, when does the game come out officially? Oh, it's out. Oh, you know, it they, is. So people can yeah. buy it. Yeah, it, it it was officially released like the start of the second week in January. Gotcha. So I guess it, gotcha. to me, it seems like it's been out forever. Uh, right. but, uh, uh, you know, I guess only about three weeks now. Yeah. You know, when I played Battle Command for the first time, um, I don't know, like, I, I think it takes a real level of humility to kind of look at a game, your own game, and say, I want to make this thing better. Because to be honest with you, for a really long time, and I may have even emailed you about this. I mean, so for, for listeners out there, right? So in regular field of battle, all three versions, right? Usually you have a deck of like 30 cards and, you know, like you've got moves, you've got melees, and usually there are three of those each, right? So the thing is, is that again, and I'm not necessarily being critical, but, you know, if you know a couple of move cards came out, you know, in a way like you kind of know what is going to sort of happen, even though there's more variability in the way that it could. The other thing is that, and especially for me running the game for kids, you know, sometimes like, even though you, 
you know, Field of Battle is much more playable than the original PK. You know, if you get a big dice roll, you know, and what, you know, and you're getting 10 cards and multiple move cards come out and you've got 40 units on the table, you know, sometimes you could be in a situation where, you know, a, a, I guess maybe you could call it an impulse goals for a really long time. So when Brent is talking about Battle Command, and again, he could probably obviously can elaborate more than I can. I've only played it once, but Essentially, what he did was he he shrunk the deck of cards down to, I think, something like six or seven or eight cards. And there are different... How many is it, Brent? Usually eight. Usually eight. So there's different permutations depending on what you roll. Um, you might pull a move card, but if you roll really well... Um, when you're rolling off with your opponent, what he can do is unlock other options that you can use. And what I found, and um, again, Brent, I don't know what your take is like in terms of playtesting, but I found that it moved way faster, which is oh, always yeah. important, which is great. And it's like, I had been fiddling with that for so long. And then all of a sudden you put the, you put the exact mechanism out that I was trying to figure out a way to change, you know, which is awesome. So I can't wait to get my own copy of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very fast playing game, uh, even faster, I think, than Field of Battle. Uh, you know, it, and, and it's not Field of Battle 4th edition. I mean, it's got the, the whole new uh, command action matrix on it. So, so I should explain the, the, the whole, everything you need to play the game is either on the cards or on the reference sheet. And the reference sheet is one side. And the top third of that, I would say, is the action matrix that shows what the, the possible actions are. And, and actions are on, like, the, the move card, the fire card, the melee card, uh, etc. Um, and so, again, depending on how you roll your command die for that uh, command group on a move card, you might also be able to uh, fire or melee. Um, but depending on if you win by rolling even or odd, it extends the flexibility to uh, the whole army can only use that new option, which creates all kinds of tension on one side, because right. now you have to decide where's the most important point we want to focus on. So, yeah, I know we could move, but this command really needs a, a melee card. Uh, the, the other thing is you... Uh, sometimes you roll, if you win and you roll even, now it's by command group. So every player who has command groups, one or multiple command groups, he can decide for that command group which action fits best for what they want to do. And they may not be the perfect ones, but at, at least he's just not like, ah, it's melee, I can't do a thing down here. Right. Um, so there's, there's a lot more interaction in that. It's like additional decision points and energy is, is pumped into the game through this really simple mechanic uh, at, the, at the top level that you don't, you don't have to think about it. I mean, once you've played, done that process a couple of times, you're like, oh, I know exactly how to do this. So you, you aren't going back to the rule book. You aren't, nobody's telling you when to do, do this or that. The cards tell you when the opportunity to make those decisions are. Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, we, we regularly play here in our group games of between 20 and 30 units on a side um, in two hours or less. And, and, and I mean, it's not like uh, we're, we're silent and oh, focus on the game. We got to get the game done. Let's see how fast we Trust me, there, there's, there's so much BS going on during our game. <laughs> right. <laughs> Usually I have to tell people, okay, let's, let's get back to the game. Yeah. Uh, but, but the game 
uh, I mean, it's the combination of that command matrix on top of the, the pretty streamlined field of battle uh, movement and combat resolution. Uh, it, it just moves the game very quickly. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And like I said, um, the added variability and the fact that it plays faster. Um, I don't know. When I was younger, I kind of liked the eight-hour marathon game. But, you know, the older I get, I do kind of like being done in a couple hours. That way, you know, we can go at lunch or have a drink or something right. along those lines, which is cool. Yeah, so, so what we do is um, I, I just put a card table off in the area right next to the game area and i load that up with like the the bagged cookies and chips right. and all of that so all the stuff we shouldn't eat <laughs> yeah they, they wander off and get it and come back to the table uh but but we uh, we start at either nine or ten in the morning on a saturday morning and we'll play our first game and typically you know it's we play once a month and uh if we start at 10 that means the die roll and probably starts around 11 because everybody's right. like hey what's been going on how's the job what's going on with this or that right uh, so you know if we start at 11 it's pretty rare that we're still playing that game by two it's usually mm-hmm. between one to one thirty. so then we'll look at it and we'll go okay let's let's do game two so we do two games every time we get together and then usually uh, the guys are the games wrapped up and they're taken off by four or four thirty in the afternoon. We've done two games. Uh, we'll keep the same terrain, the same troops. We call it a mini campaign. Maybe we'll adjust some values of the troops a little bit based on how they performed in the first game. But then, uh, a very simple way to make a, a game play entirely different, even with the same troops in the same terrain, is is we just change the axis of um, setup so instead of okay in game one you can set up 18 inches onto your edge mm-hmm. each side so in game two nope i'm drawing a diagonal from this corner to that corner and nobody can be within 18 inches of any enemy troop and we randomize when you put your command groups on so that mm-hmm. basically that setup kind of determines a new scenario so now you, all of a sudden that ridge that looked like it was at your front now you're coming down the spine of it so it has a right. whole different so it's a whole different set of tactical uh, problems to solve. No, that's super fun. What what um what size table do you guys play on? Do you do like a six uh, by six width or a by five width or? My my table is a little over five foot by a little over nine foot. Okay. Custom table I built, so it's kind of some weird dimensions, but yeah, um, yeah about five by nine. I like the I like the five foot width because depending on what kind of game you you know you're playing unless you have like gigantic arms you know it's so hard to reach across the table but i know right. back in the day a lot of people really did like the big like 12 by 6 you know so yeah and, and you know i think to, to me we've gotten used to games between 20 and 30 units you don't have to have armies that size yeah I mean, you could like perfectly enjoyable games with the 10 or 12 units on a side. Yeah. Uh, they'll be very quick, but you can play a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the things, and, and I, I don't like massive games because individual units lose their uniqueness and their impact because it's like, okay, I lost that one. Well, it doesn't matter. I've got three more just like them right behind them. So they'll just move up into the meat grinder until everybody's ground down. And, right. and I would rather have games where 
yeah, there is a need for um, reserves. There is a need for movement of reserves and to exploitation. And if you get too many troops, it's just not, no matter the rule system, it, it just doesn't, to me, that's not an enjoyable game. How do you handle reserves? Because I've always found that's what, next to terrain, that's one of the most difficult and underused elements of most games. How do you, so, how do you guys do it? So it, the, the game itself gives you the ability to have units that are kept on table uh, in reserve because you have the chance for multiple moves on a card. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can specifically do that. Sometimes I will tell one or both sides that uh, if the other side wishes, they can keep a command or multiple commands off table and appear on like a road on this edge or that edge at whatever time so we'll we'll know how many move segments it takes to for example instead of coming on on the road on their side of the table if there's a road like on the end of the table which would represent more of a flank of the battlefield it might take nine move segments to appear over there so then they'll have to start counting it down gotcha um, which is is always interesting because uh, in, in the campaign system that that i did in field of battle three um which we technically we still use that for battle command uh sometimes depending on on circumstances you might have a command or commands that have to deploy off table at the start of the game and you might think oh they're move, four move segments away doesn't sound like much until you start rolling for moves and the first time you roll a one you don't move so then right. you have to wait for the next card to come up to have that option or the next move opportunity in battle command on an action roll. Yeah, that makes so sense. It, it, you might get there really quickly. You might not get there that quickly, which kind of jives with history because that's you know history is full of examples of um, troops marching to the sound of the guns that were either very good or you know weather interfered with it, dust, heat, uh, falling out to, to, for food, you know, what, whatever that could have delayed a mark, missing a turn, uh, all kinds of things that are, are just better abstracted and explained away uh, in a post-game review than saying, oh, this is exactly what happened at this point. Yeah, and again, like what you're, I would even double or triple down on that. I mean, most of the time when you're reading Battlefield accounts, it's like, it, it the way that most war games were are where it's sort of like you just fill the table on both sides with units and there's nowhere to go i mean sure like in certain kinds of frontal attacks um in certain you know eras that would happen but most of the time when a battle is sort of getting under the wave you have stuff arriving at all different times you know right. it's not as linear as a lot of war games are so right yeah i'm, I'm sure uh custer would have liked been to do it mark more quickly right i'm sure and right. keith rolled a lot of ones sure so brent i have one more one more question as we start to sort of wrap up i want to actually go sort of go backwards right just um, almost like towards the beginning of our conversation so how was the transition made if you don't mind talking about it how was the transition made from you know you so you've got pk being released in the late 90s um how what is that transition like going from you know PK and taking that and then putting out the very first because FOB was the first of your games or or did you release something else based on PK? Field of Battle. So before uh, Field of Battle, there was a game called Command PK, and that was you, right? That was that was me. Okay. So I, I, I'd written all the the second editions uh, 
so we re-released the, the first historical supplements for PK. And then that's another difference. Uh, PK, uh, you needed the period supplements. And for Field of Battle, it covers everything from like 1700 to 1900. Right. So one, one set of rules. And it's the same with Battle Command. Uh, now, there are uh, ancient sets and um, World War II sets. And I can explain where that's going if you want. Um, sure. Before we're done. Um, but um, the Battle Command, excuse me. Command PK was the first game where I started to try to implement some of those tweaks to PK. So there was a, a multiple move opportunity, but you had to roll after each move segment. So kind of right. like a gamble as you went, as opposed to just rolling, and, and that that was a result. Um, gotcha. So that that game, and it still used the old PK D20 versus D20 initiatives. So it was it was kind of a half breed in that respect, mm-hmm. um, and and then. Field of Battle, I think, came out first edition in about 2008 or nine, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Sounds somewhere in there. And then there was a second edition and then a third edition. And uh, no, I'm not doing more editions. I, I don't do editions just to uh, ring the cash register. There's, <laughs> right. there's too much work involved in the writing and, and sure. the development and the timelines to do that. Gotcha. Uh, so, so that's that's kind of how the transition went in stages from PK to Field of Battle. Yeah, that's great. And what are you working on now? So now that Battle came in, it has come out. So uh, right now I'm working on the World War II version of Battle Command. Uh, oh, that's just, fun. Yeah, we just had a game last week. So that was, I, you know, people are people in the PK world are probably sick of hearing me mention World War II and they probably roll their eyes because I've gone through so many iterations of rules. I, I've been working on the next set of World War II rules for probably 10 years. Right. Uh, so settling on the scale, what what the unit size is going to be and the mechanics uh, and Battle Command fits perfectly for what I, right. I want to do. So that one... Um, I would say that's probably 95% of the way done on development right now mm-hmm. to the point where I'm ready to, I hate to even think about it, it's time to, to hit the uh, uh, the writing stage to put everything down. I mean, the play sheet's done, the cards right. are done. And so from that, then I use the same uh, structure of the, the book in Battle Command to uh, uh, adjust for the, the different rules and the text. So you're going you're gonna to kind of see if I can say this and have it make sense. So are you going to take the battle command pr- principles and sort of tie it to FOB World War II? Or are you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Or are you updating yeah, so those rules as well? The, 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 the field of battle World War II, you could think of this kind of like the battle command version of that. Although it's, I, I haven't even looked back at that to see what I did there. I mean, yeah. there's, so, so for example, machine guns are assets that you right. can assign to units. Um, because what I, what I'm trying to do and what what it is going to be is I, I look at World War II games and there's always too much stuff on mm-hmm. the table. I don't want trucks on my table. Right. I, I want I want maneuver elements and combat units on the table. Uh, and and in in our games, uh, I watched guys playing and you know like i said i love world war ii i I mean you can see i've got tons of cabinets around here probably 
couple of sections of World War II books. I, I, I've probably got, I don't know, I've probably got over 2,000 books, right. uh, not just World War II, but overall periods. Uh, and so I've, I've read manuals and I've studied things and I've looked at how long it takes to break down a machine gun and move it. And, you know, and at some point, yeah, that's great to know. And, and I can understand all of that. But to put that into a game, I, I was guilty of trying to push too much of stuff that I'd learned and what I thought was really cool into a game. And, and inevitably I'd put that out on the table and the guys would kind of just do what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, the machine guns started to be moved like Napoleonic artillery batteries. And I'm like, no, 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 no. that's not right. That's not the way you use it. Right. So I found if I took those out of the game and they became assets that could be reassigned as, as combat multipliers to the individual infantry units, then it, it started to flow better. And if I took leader figures off the table, but there was still each command group, uh, which is usually going to be either a, uh, a platoon or a company, depending on the game scale, um, then it started to feel better and it started to look better. And, and you know, when, when we've been doing the development tests, I can't tell you how many times we've been through where mechanically everything looked good. And I, after the guys left, I'd be like, well, that game's crap. Yeah, <laughs> that didn't look like I wanted it to look. It didn't play like I wanted it to play. Uh, but our our last development games uh, hit that hit that sweet spot. So I'm I'm real happy with it right now. No, that's great. I'm looking forward to it because it's it really is hard to find rules out there for World War II that are at the scale that you're writing them. You know, uh, so many times it's more like, you know, you've got an infantry squad, like Bolt Action. And again, I love Bolt Action. Right. Like, it's a, it's a fun game, especially in the classroom. After school programs, kids love that game. But you don't necessarily get, you know, that the sort of grand strategy, obviously, which is, I think, something that I always liked about FOB World War Two. Right. Yeah, and, and in uh, the World War Two Battle Command game, uh, at the lowest level, you're going to be... On a side, you're probably going to have at least an infantry battalion, mm-hmm. and, and and I would say that's probably like a minimum size. That's only around nine units, right? Uh, so that's like, that'd be a very fast game. But then you're going to have off-board artillery or mortars. You're going to have machine gun assets you can assign. Um, we we play games that represent essentially uh, a division assault uh, against uh, fortified positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can play that three hours. Yeah. Um, so you so you're more worried about when do you, when do I use my artillery assets? Uh, when do I want to put in my request to get more artillery? Um, you know, you, it, it's much more of a command focused game. Yeah, obviously weapons are rated accordingly. So a tiger has better armor and, and combat value than a, a Sherman, for example. But troop quality affects that. Mm-hmm. So you don't always know that that Panther uh, platoon is going to be uh, a fantastic unit compared to your Sherman platoon. I mean, they, they might be a, a green platoon or, you know, if it's 1945, they might be completely inexperienced or disillusioned uh, and they don't want to be there. Uh, so they might roll and, and be rated quite poorly so they're maybe still a little bit better than sherman's but maybe the sherman's rolled really well when they were rated so 
you know, they, they've got a better ability, they're better trained, so they aren't going to expose their flanks. They've got better gunnery training, so they're, they're more capable there. So, you know, I, I love technology. Don't get me wrong, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm, I'm a tank geek. I, I love all the World War II armor and understanding all the capabilities. But I think at the end of the day, games have placed way too much um, certainty on that as a, as a, as a decisive um, factor on the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sure, it had an effect. I, I mean, but if, if you have a Panther and a Sherman on a, on a, sitting on a flat stretch of road, 300 yards apart, you know who's going to win. It wasn't that way on the battlefield. I, I challenge anybody anywhere. And trust me, I'm from Eastern Colorado. It's pretty flat. But it's pretty hard to see something 300 yards away if you're on foot in the countryside. Um, so uh, all of those things to me say that, that acting at the right time, um, decisions you make, the training of the troops, all of that has at least as much of an impact as the, the weapon type and, and capability. Yeah. I mean, we could have a whole podcast just on that topic alone, you know, because it's making me think about the way you reflect you know, combat factors, right? So again, if you've never played any of these games before, um, units have a combat die, right? So they might have a combat die of 10, which reflects their ability on offense, essentially, whether that's melee or whether that's shooting or not. And then units have a defense die, which can, again, I mean, mean a lot of different things, like their ability to withstand punishment, their morale, like their training level, which is cool because, again, it it simplifies everything compared to a lot of other games, so... So Brent, any any uh, parting words? Anything um, that uh, you want to chat about that we didn't get to? Because we are just uh, running out of time on so- to some extent, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Like I said, I, I you can probably tell I love talking about about this stuff and the hobby and the history. Um, you know, if, if anybody wants more information, they can just search for us on Facebook. Um, PK, PK and Field of Battle on Facebook. You don't want to just search for PK because it'll probably come up with like Nelson PK or the right. PK family from, from racing, but P-I-Q-U-E-T and Field of Battle on Facebook. Um, and, and you'll see a lot more. It's a pretty active community on there. Um, you know, I, and, you know, I, 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 I love talking about uh, anything in the in the gaming world uh so it's it's uh, it's focused on pk but um you know i'm the uh, administrator so i get to choose if anybody steps out of line and nobody has <laughs> right. <it. laughs> right and i'll i'll also give a a second or a third plug at this point to if you really want to um see kind of almost like an outsider's perspective like because again peter anderson i know that he wrote if my memory serves right he wrote band of brothers which is, uh, my again, if my memory serves right, it's all about sort of the Italian wars. Um, but what he does on his blog, which is great, is like he'll, he runs games and he sort of meticulously tracks like what happened in the game, like kind of like an AAR. So in addition to going to the Facebook page, if you just type in a search for uh, blunders on the Danube, that is in reference to uh, Peter's blog, but also, too, he designed a scenario book uh, based on the 1809 Napoleonic campaign. I can't stress enough uh, 
you can get a ton of information about everything we talked about right on that website. And Peter's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And he really is um, one of the, you know, he's one of these people who um, he's so quiet and he's so humble. But then when you start poking him a little bit, it's like the guy is a treasure trove of information is like one of the smartest people I've ever met. So, absolutely, yeah. And if, um, you know, if you go to any of the HMGS cons here on the East coast, um, he's typically at Historicon and he's a machine. He'll run like six or seven games, like in the weekend. Um, I, I, I can barely function after running one game. And this guy is like twice my age or, well, not exactly twice my age, but you get the idea. You know, he, he has more energy than I think I've ever had in my life. So yeah, it's, it's exhausting running games. It really is. I don't know how he does it. No, I don't know either. But, um, but Brent, I, I, again, I have to say as, as a fan, um, you know, it's really nice chatting with you. Um, I, and I, and for our listeners, I hope that, uh, I hope that, uh, you, you know, you get a chance to check out any of the games that we talked about today. And you can even always email uh, the next gen people. So the organization I work with, um, it'd be my name, Jay Fishman um, at nextgengaming.org. Or you could even go to our website because there'll be a little information on the website about, you know, some of the games that we've talked about. And I'm always happy to promote uh, the innovators in the, in the field. So, so Brian, thank you, my friend. You bet. Thank you very much. All right, everyone have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore nextgen underscore ink until next time be well get some gaming in and roll some 20s thank you so much